song where it says, all my delight is in you, Lord. I can remember when I was 23, about two weeks, and I just got saved. I was at church, and uh, I was so happy that I finally understood who Jesus was. And I can remember in my mind saying, man, if just someday I could get to tell a group of people up front that Jesus is the best. But I I don't know if I'll ever get that chance. And I was thinking about it. That's what I'm going to talk about today. The greatest person who ever lived. And our only hope. And uh, all my delights in Him. And I pray after today, you'll have a, I don't know, a further appreciation for how great Jesus really, really is. So you bow with me in prayer. Father, I just want to say thank you. I don't deserve to be able to proclaim the greatness of your Son, but I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, not just on the Word today, but on the listener, that you'd fill us full. And in a world that has completely disregarded the true King, I pray that he'd be brought to the forefront. Just in this short amount of time this morning, I pray that you'd make your Word alive, and uh, I pray that there would be joy because of that. We love you, Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Could you open up to Matthew 21? Matthew 21. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I don't care. I honestly, I hate, I hate the direction our country's going right now. Utterly hate it. I am tired of politics. I am sick of our leaders who lie, cheat, scheme, posture. They have this fake moral virtual signaling and just how greedy and grubby their ways are. I'm tired of it. Just sickening. Um, man, it just seems like politicians now are just vile, all of them, through and through. And uh, inflation is making me crazy, probably making you crazy. The moral decay, especially during this month, it's heartbreaking. And just being a pastor when you get phone calls, I've, I've gotten a lot of more phone calls in the last two years just... I need to talk to you. And the anxiety that is permeating households now. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. I just wish somebody would come and set things straight. But to do that, they must have power to do it, authority to do it. They must be able to call out all the liars, punish all the cheaters, jail those who steal, confront all the grifters and the parasites. I don't want another politician I don't want another television and movie celebrity. I'm kind of tired of them too. I don't know about you. They can drive you nuts. I want a king. I want a king. A good king. A kind and good ruler to completely eradicate evil and bring peace. It's funny, today's Father's Day and it's been 16 years now since my dad passed away. And when he died... This strange cloud of vulnerability hovers over me, you know, like, you know, when he was alive, I had somebody I could talk to, somebody above me, you know, somebody when I had problems or needed advice, I could talk to him, but now I, you know, I don't have him. And when you lose a dad, you kind of feel a little empty. I just wish I had somebody who was above it all who sees my problems, can give me advice, and can take care of me, you know? Well, we're going to talk about them today. And the title is, Behold Your King. 
And uh, I'm going to make an argument for him. In a, in a sense, a pastor is a herald. So what a herald is, it's kind of like a guy sent by the king to go tell everybody about the king and his coming. And so I'm kind of in the role of herald today. I'm also in the role of I'm going to be his chief witness, his, his uh, lawyer, to kind of argue his case for you. We're going to learn about him. I'm going to be as honest as possible about him. And um, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to do my best because even though I don't see him, I love him. I love him. So what I would say when you, when you have the Bible, the Bible has three major themes. So this is 66 writers write this one book. In this book, there's three major themes. The first theme is redemption. That means this is a book about sinners who are being called back by the Creator through the blood of the one who purchased them. That's the first and most important theme. We call that the theme of redemption. There's also the theme of goodness, God's goodness. He's good. So everywhere through this Bible, you see His good qualities. He's merciful, patient, kind, just. But I would say, if you've ever taken a concordance and looked up the word king, the third theme that permeates this Bible is that we are waiting for a king to show up and sit on his throne and usher in a new kingdom. And to me, it's almost the most important message in the Bible. And along with that, today we're going to talk about his arrival on this earth, where he actually declared before the world, I'm the guy. I'm the one. But to get there, I'm going to ask you to do something I don't often ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to use your Bibles today. I know that's asking a lot. I understand. If you have your Bible, hold it up. See if you got it. You got it with you? And I'm not doing that Joel Osteen thing. Hold it up there. See, this is a nice Bible. We're going to use it today. We're going to use it today. Because I want you to learn it. Derek, do you have yours? Yes, Derek brought his Bible. And we're going to learn from it. So here's my argument. It's going to be my case for Jesus as king. It's going to take four parts. The first is I'm going to try to argue that God has put a desire in our hearts, everybody's hearts, for a king. You know you can't rule, and you know you need somebody to step up and right all the wrongs. And God put that in there. I think the second thing we're going to talk about is God has planted clues in this Bible, also historically, planted breadcrumbs that are going to lead us to the one who's fulfilling all of our dreams. And I'll show you quickly how that happens. Third thing we're going to talk about is the day. In fact, if you see up there, we got the throne up there finally. That means we are now entering the part in the book of Matthew where Jesus is saying, here I am. What are you going to do with me? And then the fourth thing is I'm just going to give you six reasons why no one compares to him. So let's begin. First part is this created desire. We opened up the, ser- uh, the service with Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is actually a psalm about eternity. And on eternity it said God has set his king on the throne. And it's his son. But I want you to go to 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is towards the back of the Bible, right before Revelation. Peter was Peter the fisherman, the main apostle. He writes this book in his older age, and it's funny because when you read Peter in the narratives, he just he's kind of a he's kind of a rockhead a little bit, but when you read his book, 
He is one of the most eloquent people who ever wrote some scripture. And in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, look at verse 8. I quoted this at the beginning of my message, but it says, talking about the revelation, in the end of verse 7, the revelation of Jesus. His name means God saves Jesus Christ. God saves, and his title is King. Christ is King. We're going to talk about that in a second. So though you've not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That even though I don't see him, there's something in the depth of my soul that I know he's got it all under control. And I can rejoice. But if you go to verse 11, or verse 10, it says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched. And they inquired carefully. That means they wanted to know about it, but they didn't. They couldn't understand it. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And every time you see Christ, in your mind, it's king. It's king. So they're looking, these Old Testament prophets are, they want, they want to know what they're writing. They don't even know what they're writing. But they're searching for what they're writing. But they know it was meant for you. And in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels even long to look. Even angels don't get this. And then if you go to um, verses 19 and 20, this is where it gets interesting. talks again about the Christ. Verse 19, But with the precious blood of the King, of the Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So, Jesus' death and Jesus' kingship, His throne, was appointed in eternity. That's why we long for him. God, before he even tossed the globe into existence, said, I have installed my king on Zion. In eternity he did that. It's always meant to be. Second thing I want you to notice, you don't have to go to this, but even in, the, in Moses' writing, so the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were all written by Moses. Moses wrote them all. Deuteronomy, which is the last book he wrote, means the second giving of the law. So he's basically going to reiterate everything he said in the first four books. In Deuteronomy, chapter 17, he says, later on, you guys are going to want a king. You're going to want a king. And when you have a king, make sure he's righteous and good. But 450 years before the king came, Moses said, you're going to want a king. And then later on, he says, that king is going to be the savior of the world in Deuteronomy 32. So it's always been predicted, and God has always been ready and willing to have his king be put on the throne. So my argument is, it's in your heart right now. You want somebody to rule reason why you're sick of politics is because you know it should be better than this. The reason why you're always hungering for somebody to come in and make things right is because you know they're going to be made right. And it's in Jesus. And that's where we come to the next part 
which I'm going to call the planted clues. And I'm going to show you three ways he plants the clues. The first way is really interesting. Who did I say wrote the first book, the first five books? Moses. And the first five books are known as the law. So Moses wrote the law. If you guys remember historically, Moses was the prince that led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he went into the wilderness. How many years were they in the wilderness? Forty years. So when they went to the wilderness, where were they hoping to get to? The promised land. It was on the, what, what was it, what did they have to cross to get to the promised land? The Jordan River. So you have the Jordan River. On the west side of the Jordan River is the promised land. That's filled with milk and honey. And they were going to live there and all of God's promises were going to be true. Did Moses bring his people to the promised land? No. He died in the wilderness. He died on the east bank of the Jordan River. He didn't make it to the promised land. Who brought them to the promised land? Joshua. Whose name is exactly like Joshua's? So here's the deal. Joshua in the Hebrew means God saves. It's the same exact name as Jesus. Listen to what one writer says. Jesus is derived from the Greek version of the name Joshua. That's the Hebrew version. The New Testament books were first published in Greek, and Messiah's Hebrew name was translated to form the Greek name I-E-S-O-U-S, Eusus. Further translation of the New Testament in the Latin resulted in the Latin name Iesus, I-E-S-U-S. When the letter J was introduced into the English language, the I in Iesus changed to forming the name Jesus. Since the Messiah's Hebrew name, Yeshua, means God saves, the name Jesus is likewise understood to mean God saves. So what this is, this is called a typology. That means God has uses, he uses metaphors to shadow in the Old Testament what is going to be real in the New Testament. So where the law could not bring us to the promised land, we needed Jesus to. In the book of Joshua, specifically chapter 12, gives a list of 31 kings he utterly, Joshua utterly annihilated. He just destroyed them all. He conquered. When you get to the end of Joshua, it says how everything God told him to do, he did. And he fulfilled it all. And there was peace in the land. It is a typology of Christ where the law does not save us. The law doesn't rescue us. You can be as religious as you want. You can try as hard as you want, but you'll still be in a desert. But to cross over into eternal life, to the promised land, you need Jesus. That's the planted first clue of typology. Then you have the history. The history is an actual history of the Jewish people. So go to the book of 1 Samuel. So you'll go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Moses. Then you get these judges, these guys that come in and Israel sins and they bring judges to bring back peace. And then the judge dies, they sin, they keep bringing these judges and the people are getting tired of it. Samuel is the last judge. And if you go to Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 through 9, you're going to see how the people were demanding a king. Is in their hearts. 
So Samuel is the last judge. 1 Samuel chapter 8. In verse 4 through 9 it says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. They wanted a king who had flesh on. They wanted a king who they could see. They wanted a king who could wipe out their enemies and they could follow behind. So the people wanted a real person. That's what they wanted. Samuel gets mad at this. So if you read verse uh, 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us the king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king. So they wanted a king. So the first king, you can find it in 1 Samuel 9, verse 17, this guy Saul. Saul was taller than everybody. Saul was good looking and Saul was strong. But Saul was also proud. He was man's king. Actually, Saul would probably be, if you want to typecast a guy for Aragorn on Lord of the Rings, the king, it'd probably be Saul. I mean, that guy is good looking, strong. But this was man's king. He's full of pride and he sinned. So God said, you know what? I'm going to install my king. So God had a king waiting in the wings. So if you go to 1 Samuel 16, this is where we get the word Christ. You'll understand what I mean. So 1 Samuel 16, God was mad at Saul, and so the Lord said to Samuel in verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. So he took a horn, filled it with oil. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to this guy Jesse from the city of Bethlehem. You might have heard that city of Bethlehem. I don't know, it rings some story we believe. I don't know what, that, what it is. Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Jesse had all these sons, and his youngest son was named David, was his youngest son. So if you go to verse 12, God tells Samuel, this is the guy. And verse 12 says, and he set and brought David in. Now he was ruddy. That means he was red-complected. He had beautiful eyes. Eyes are always a window to the soul. He had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one I chose. This is my king, is what he means. And he sent and brought him. Now he was, um, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So here he takes David in the midst of his brothers, takes the horn of oil, pours it over his head, the oil flows, and that's where we get the word anointed. He's anointed. It's where we get the word Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the word anointed. And watch what happens when he's anointed. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, from that day forward. 
So David also had the Spirit's anointing. So in the Old Testament, when the Spirit came upon people, it gave them ability to be king and also priest. Now the Holy Spirit, when you believe, lives inside of you. So you receive the anointing on the inside. You're a little Christ. Christian. So he's God's king. And he was a good king. And he loved God. It says he's a man after God's own heart. He fought wars, brought peace to Israel. He's the guy that slayed Goliath. He also wrote a ton of psalms, which we call the psalms. And he was so good that God told David, you know what, because you honor me, I'm going to give you a promise. And this is called the Davidic covenant, or a promise between God, David, and I would dare say the world. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Samuel 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, that means he was a little shepherd boy, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So he says, I'm going to raise up from your loins, from your lineage, a king. And he's going to be pretty strong. He's going to establish the kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a couple of years. Oh, it says, it says forever. I read it wrong. Forever! That's a long, Jackie, is that a long time? That's like a long time. So he's going to set up the throne for the rest of days. So this is history. And then what happened? David died, and kings started succeeding him, but they were bad. Like, there was one guy named Manasseh. If you ever read the story of Manasseh, he would take his kids and sacrifice them, where they'd put them over Moloch, where the arms of bronze, there'd be a fire heated, and the arms would be burning on fire, and he'd take his little babies and sacrifice his babies on Moloch. That's one of David's sons. His sons weren't that good. And so that's when prophecy came in, because when, when his sons started rebelling, they were, they were, Israel was thrown into slavery, and people are like, well, let's give up hope. God gave us a promise. He's not going to follow through. So they started prophesying. The first one was Isaiah, and he said, don't worry, don't worry, a king will take over. He's going to come. God's servant is going to come. Then you have Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is in slavery. God told Jeremiah, the king is going to come and he is going to be David's son. Don't worry. God's promises won't fail. You might think, might think things stink right now. God's promises never fail. Do you believe that? And then this guy Hosea Hosea was given a bad deal. He was to marry a prostitute, which was supposed to be an illustration of Israel being a prostitute against God, being unfaithful. But he said, Hosea, don't worry. When the king comes, who's David's son, not only will people be brought back to peace, but they will love God again. The nation will love God again. Then you have this guy Micah. Micah starts getting really specific because it's, the, the, it's like the years are passing. The years are passing, and Micah said, it's getting close, and the way you can tell, it's going to be in the city of David, 
Bethlehem where he's going to be born. Remember Jesse from Bethlehem? David's born in Bethlehem. The king is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then this guy, Zechariah, one of the weirdest books of the Bible, honestly. Aaron, do you do your devotionals out of Zechariah? I know you do, don't you? Have you ever done your devotionals out of Zechariah? Why don't you start doing devotionals, Aaron? What in the world? Anyhow, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9, 9, I want you to turn to it. It's one of the last minor prophets in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, 9. I'm going to read it really slow so it will kind of like, you know, put a, put a little burn mark on your brain so you can remember it because it's really important. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is a prophecy about 450 years before the New Testament is written. That's a long time. 450 years is almost double the existence of America. So, Zechariah 9.9. And the prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Zion means the people of God in Israel and Jerusalem. God's loved one. So rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Man, he's good. He's humble. And the way you can tell he's humble, he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fowl of a donkey. So that's Zechariah 9.9, about 450 years before Matthew. Now we can turn to Matthew 21. So I've been feeding you little clues, the typology of how we need somebody with the name Jesus to bring him into the promised land. We need somebody who's from the son of David, and we need somebody who's coming in on a donkey. That's a lot to ask for. It's kind of crazy. You've got to be nuts to think God will answer things specifically. Like even when it comes to end times, you really think God's going to come out of the sky and rescue us? You're believing weird things, you know? We need to be more general. Don't take the Bible so seriously. It's just a book about good and evil. That's it. Well, let's read Matthew 21. It's kind of interesting. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so Jesus and his disciples... They were going through Galilee for two and a half, three years. They started going to Jericho. Jericho's down by the Jordan River, surprisingly. And then from Jericho up, they started heading to Jerusalem. Before that time, every time Jesus did something, they would say, Jesus would say, just be quiet about it. Could you be quiet about it? It's not my time. Be quiet about it. And the disciples were like, huh? Do you remember they said, oh, we know you're the Son of God. And Jesus goes, I know you do, but just be quiet about it. It's not the time. Matthew 21, now it's the time, because watch. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into a village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. That's really a weird thing to ask for. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey and a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Hosanna to the Son of David. That means praise be or glory, honor to the Son of who? David. Hmm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were mad. The religious leaders always get mad. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. So this, I call, is the great reveal. It's what the world's been waiting for. It's what history's been leading to. It's what God predicted. It's what God has been chomping the bit. Even before the world began, he was waiting for Matthew 21 to see what people would do. Are you going to accept my king or not? That's the whole point. That's the whole point. And I want to finish my argument today to say, when I look at Matthew 21, there are six reasons why nobody even compares. There is no other place to look. Like, honestly, I don't understand why we're not more excited about our king than we are. Why are we so embarrassed about Jesus? There is nobody that compares to him. And I'm going to give you six reasons why based on what we just read. And the first reason is this. Reason number one, if you've got good eyes, Dan, you should see a color difference so you can read the number. What number does it say, Dan? Four. He's an artist. He's got good eyes. Look at verse four. Verse four, reason number one, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The reason why I think Jesus, and there's no one like him, is because he has fulfilled prophecy like nobody else. And I don't think we take prophecy that Im as important as we should. For instance, the book of Isaiah, really from chapters 41 all the way to chapter 46, God makes this statement. He says, I'm going to prove to you that I'm God. And there is no other God. Like he, it's kind of like he's calling out all the gods of the earth, all the nations around him and says, I'm going to prove to you I'm God. You want to know how I'm going to prove it to you? I'm going to predict the end from the beginning. I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen before it happens, and I'm going to be very specific about it. In, flat, in fact, verse 46, verse 10, he says, okay, you rebels, fix it in your mind. I am going to send out a man and tell him when to, get, when to come. I'm going to send a bird and when to come. I'm going to tell everybody when to do it, and it's going to happen. Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22, Moses warns people who make prophecies. If they don't come true... You should kill them. We live in a day and age where people make prophecies all the time and nothing comes true and we don't do anything about it. 
We should be stoning all kind of people. I'm kidding. You're probably going to fire me. Mike, you like that idea. Mike liked that idea. I'm with you, Mike. I'm with you. But if somebody makes a prediction, it should come true. But we're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When God makes a prediction, you know, my son is uh, going to be from the lineage of David. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. He is going to ride on a donkey when he is going to make himself known. It's kind of specific. Jesus fulfilled it. Second reason why I think he's the best. Dan, what number is that? Dan, you're letting me down. Nine. Look at number nine. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus has the perfect pedigree. That's why we have genealogies in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew that tell you where Jesus came from so we know he has blue blood. People that come in our day and age, you can't follow the lineage anymore, specifically the Jewish tribes. They've been lost through since really AD 70 when people have, when Nero came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the lineages have been all messed up and lost. But when Jesus came, they knew who his dad was and who his dad's dad was and whose dad's dad's dad was. And it says Jesus is from the house of Jesse, the son of David. So when the book of Romans was written, Paul said, in chapter 1, Romans is to me the, basically, you want to know what Christianity is all about, learn the book of Romans. But chapter 1 is the introduction, and he says, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, who is the Son of God, but he is also the Son of David. Third reason why I think Jesus needs to be listened to, what number is that? Brady, what number? See, Brady's got better eyes than you, Dan. Ten. So ten, and when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was, this is a really interesting thing. I want you to follow me. It says the whole city was stirred. I want you to go to Luke 19. Luke is two books to the right, chapter 19. 19 is right after chapter 18. See, I told you it's hard reading the Bible. It's tough. Luke 19, and I want you to look at verse 37 to 42. So this is the exact same account we read in Matthew, but it gives a little more detail. And it says something to me that's stunning. Verse 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, meaning if my disciples were not rejoicing on this day, the stones would have to cry out. Why? Because of 41 and 42. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's saying this day, this is the day that everybody should have known. So I'll put it like this, that when Jesus came, he came precisely on time. 
I'll tell you why. Because in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, there's this really weird statement about the 77s. And it gives a timeline about the decree of Artaxerxes. From the decree of Artaxerxes, you don't have to look into this, but you can read this up on your own. From the decree of Artaxerxes till the day Jesus came, there was what's called an issuing of 69 sevens. 69 periods of seven years. So from the actual decree of Artaxerxes, you can find it in the book of Nehemiah, to the arrival of the anointed one, that was Palm Sunday. That was the day. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because they weren't ready. It's sort of like, remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? And they get all these wise scholars and they ask the scholars, hey, you know there's a funny star in the sky. Where, where is the baby going to be born? The scholars say, well, the scriptures say Bethlehem, then why don't you go? I think this is how Jesus felt about this day. You should have known, but they didn't. What's this verse, Ken? 11. Dan, it's getting worse for you. Matthew 21, verse 11. And the crowd said, so the crowds, this is Matthew 21, 11. The next point is, to me, this is really interesting. And the crowds said, and by crowds, at this time, you have to understand, it's the feast of the Passover. It is speculated that about two million Jewish people were flooding the city at this time. He's entering the city that is being swollen to the teeth by people from all over Israel. And when Jesus showed up, everybody knew who he was. The crowds said, this is the prophet. This is the one. So I'd say it like this. To me, when Jesus came on the day he came, by popular agreement, they knew there was something different about this guy. Let me explain what, what I mean. So I, w- I often I like to talk to my son about basketball players. If you talk to people, there's a big debate, who's the greatest? I'm sure you've heard that debate. Usually if you debate with somebody who was born after Michael Jordan played, Often they will say somebody like LeBron James or Steph Curry. Not taken away from LeBron James or Steph Curry. But if you lived during the time when Michael Jordan was playing, he was unbelievable. Like he was unbelievable. So when you try to talk to people about how good he was in the moment, you can't explain it. But, you know, separated by 20, 30 years, the debate, ah, he's okay. He's all right. That's kind of how I feel people talk about Jesus. Yeah, he's okay. But if you lived during the time when Jesus was alive, he would walk into a whole town and heal everybody. He went to a funeral. This lady's son died. It was her only son. She was a widow. It's a city called Nain. Jesus goes to the funeral, looks in the grave, tells the kid to stand up, and the kid stands right up out of the grave, or out of the coffin while they're holding him. I haven't seen a funeral like that. Have you? I mean, seriously. He heals blind people. He walks on water. He tells a storm to shut up. This guy could take five loaves and and feed 15,000 people. And now, 2,000 years later, we yawn and go, I guess he's all right. There's other good people too. He's a good teacher. The people who lived at that time knew this guy was something else. There's no one like him. 
In fact, if you read in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about his resurrection. And Paul said, Peter saw him raised from the dead. James saw him raised from the dead. And do you know 500 people who are at this time still alive also saw him raised from the dead? 500 people still alive could testify that this man rose from the dead. And now, 2,000 years later, we go, I don't know. No big deal. No big deal. He's amazing. Next verse, this is a tough one, 12, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said, it's written, my home shall be called a house of prayer. So you've got to realize, he's in the temple, and you have all of these money changers who are trying to make money, and he's so mad. He goes in there, he takes a cord, makes a whip, and starts whipping people out of there and overturning the money tables, and nobody can stop him. He's got profound authority. Like, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible. Jesus is in the garden, and uh, the guards are going to take him, and they say, are you Jesus? And he said, it is, I am him. And the guards fall back on their butts right when he says, I am. When Jesus spoke, man, he had authority. It'd be like me going into Vatican City to go see the Pope, and I'd just start tearing it up. They're not stopping me. This is my, like, well, who, who do you think you are? I like what somebody said. When Jesus made, made whips, do you think he was bluffing? I don't think he's bluffing, and everybody knew it. Nobody, nobody faced him. There's a, one of my favorite movies is called Ben-Hur. It's with Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, who sometimes is Moses, he could play, he was, he could play all kinds of roles. He was Ben-Hur, this slave who was being escorted by the Roman guards through Jerusalem and then through Nazareth. And they're in this city of Nazareth, and there's a carpenter. You can see him silo, see his silhouette. You never see his face. But Ben-Hur is thirsty. He goes to the well of Nazareth, gets some water. And the Roman guard knocks it out of his hand. This big Roman guard with a shield on and a helmet and sword. And poor old Ben-Hur is in the dirt. And all of a sudden, you see this guy come out. All you see is hands. And he lifts up Ben-Hur and goes into the well and gets some water and starts feeding him. The Roman soldier says, get off of that man and don't give him water. I'll take care of you. And the guy who's helping Ben-Hur stands up and the Roman guard just is like, but the movie, the guy was Jesus. And it shows how when he wanted to exercise authority, nobody, nobody could say anything about him. Jesus was tough. That's why it says in Psalm 69, 9, the zeal of my house will accomplish this. There's one more reason why I think he's the best, and it's found in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And even the kids cried out. And those serious religious rulers wanted him to shut up the kids. And he said, no, I'm not going to shut up the kids. Because on kids is where I want my praise. Think about Jesus like no other leader I've ever seen. Like no other politician that lives to get today is he liked the small people. 
He has what I would call passionate mercy on people that are broken, sinful failures. He loves them. He heals the blind. He takes the lame man's knee that is twisted and he puts it right. He doesn't have to do that. He's an important king. What president would do that in our country? You think our president would do that? You think any senator would take his time out for people on the side of the street who are just broken? No, they're too important. But the king of the universe? He saved me. A fool. He still wants to listen to me on a Tuesday afternoon when I feel like a failure. He has more mercy than any king could ever have. He died. His kindness is what compels love. If God just was powerful and he could just pound people to nothing but he couldn't forgive, why worship him? You're condemned already. That's why in the Psalms it says, he who forgives is the one to be feared. The reason he's to be feared is I can run to him and he can forgive me of all of my debt. But if he was just power, that's, did you know that's the Muslim God? The Muslim God has no compassion. All he does is pound you to dirt. Why worship you then? Because I'm condemned. But with my God, I'm forgiven. And he alone should be feared. So here's my argument. Why should we worship Jesus as king? Well, number one, because it's in your heart you want a king. Number two is because the clues in the Bible lead to one person alone. The third reason is because Matthew proved he was the only one. And the fourth reason is because there's nobody like him. So here's my question. Who else you got? What else you got to beat that? So you have in the book of John, John chapter 6, Jesus gives this massive, massive teaching and everybody leaves but the disciples because it was too hard. So he looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, why don't you leave too? And Peter looks at him. No one else has the words of eternal life. Who else you got? And if you don't have anybody else, why don't you start standing up for the one you do have? Why don't you start being proud of him? And stop letting him be as a swear word around you. Say, can you just not talk about my God like that? Why are we so apathetic to him? Tired about worship. Oh boy, I've got to worship him on Sunday. He's your king. Who lives right now? I was talking to Gio on Tuesday and Jasmine about this old preacher I like. His name's J. Vernon McGee. Remember J. Vernon McGee? Kind of talk like that. My beloved. And they're like, why do you like that guy? He's like an old guy. And the reason why I like that guy is the way he talked about Jesus. He talked about him as if he was royalty. We don't talk about him like that anymore. He's king. He's king. Actually, I've been reading The Lord of the Rings, and book two is where Aragorn shows up, and he was Strider the whole time, and then he reveals this sword, and it says he kind of grew 
in their midst, and they looked at him, and they got a new appreciation for him, and they said they backed up a little bit because there was, said there was brightness on his crown like they saw the true strength of the king. And I wish we would treat Jesus more like that. He's incredible. And you know, the more you worship him, the smaller your problems become. The stronger he is, the weaker the world is. Why? Maybe your anxiety is because you're not sure Jesus is king. But when he becomes king, you have nothing to worry about. You'll be just fine. Even if the gas goes up 0.02 cents, you'll be okay. Let's pray. Father, we, um, I just thank you for Matthew. I thank you for the patience of people listening and going through an argument that on a Sunday morning when people are tired, it could be a lot. But I just pray that it will weigh heavy and the love for Jesus will be stronger because they've been here today. Because Jesus, you are worthy. You really do deserve it. And I just pray you're pleased. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me and sing to our King who's on his throne? oceans in his hand who has numbered every grain of sand kings and nations tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice on his throne come let us adore him behold our king nothing can compare come let us adore him to the Lord who can question any of his words who can teach the one who knows all things who can fathom all his wondrous deeds behold our God seated on his throne Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Who has felt upon his hands bearing all 
the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to him today and forever. It starts now and it goes on forever. I hope you're encouraged today. You may go in peace.